0: as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode.
1: Gaveston again went north, this time to prepare for the Scottish campaign. During the next four months, Edward unheedingly made a series of further grants to peers, But he also continued to make grants to Isabella throughout 1310 and 1311 in the form of writs and warrants issued under the privy seal through the royal wardrobe. The Queen was to go north with the King. She left London at the beginning of August and travelled in slow stages via Nottingham and Beverley. Edward himself having appointed Lincoln, Keeper of the Realm, followed in September and on the 18th was reunited with Gaveston at Berwick, whence the English army marched into Scotland. Yet it was an army largely without baronial support, for although all the earls had been summoned to attend the king, only Gloucester, Richmond and Surrey showed up. The rest stayed at home, because they hated Gaveston more than the others. Furthermore, the campaign proved a humiliating failure, for Bruce had laid waste the Scottish lowlands, destroying crops and moving livestock north. Faced with starvation, the English were forced to retreat. By the beginning of November, Edward and Piers were back at Berwick, where Isabella joined them before the 16th, the King and Queen decided to winter at Berwick and actually stayed there until the following July. Gaveston went to Roxburgh in November and joined them later on. After Christmas, Gaveston surrendered a rich wardship, that of Thomas Wake, which he'd been granted in October 1308, to Isabella. This must be interpreted as a conciliatory gesture towards the Queen. Gaveston was now constantly in her company and needed her goodwill, so it was imperative that relations between them were as cordial as possible. Edward would also have wished King Philip to know of Piers's generosity towards Isabella. In February 1311, there was bad news from London the well-respected Lincoln had died on the 5th at his house, Lincoln's Inn, in Hoburn. His death removed the last moderate influence on the chief ordainers. It also made his son-in-law, Lancaster, the richest and most powerful of the magnates, for Lancaster now inherited two more earldoms, those of Lincoln and Salisbury. However... When the Earl went north to pay homage to the King for them, he humiliated Edward by forcing him to cross the River Tweed to come to him rather than cross it himself as courtesy demanded, and then pointedly ignored Gaveston. Lancaster typified the overmighty subject of the Middle Ages. his mission now was to become a second Simon de Montfort ostensibly to save the country from misgovernment. But the chief aim of this grasping and ambitious aristocrat was to control the king. There was little political integrity or foresight in him. This was the man who emerged as the natural leader of the ordainers, by virtue of his birth and wealth alone, and who would soon be Edward's most dangerous enemy. Gloucester was appointed keeper of the realm in Lincoln's place. At this time, the king was experiencing increasing financial difficulties. He'd even pledged the crown jewels as security against a loan. He had also lost support and credibility as a result of the humiliating Scottish fiasco. A further campaign, led by Gaveston in May and June 1311, was equally unsuccessful. This all played right into the hands of the ordainers, who had nearly completed work on their proposed reforms and who now required the King's presence in the capital. Reluctantly, on June 16th, Edward summoned Parliament to London, and at the end of July he left Berwick with Isabella, having appointed Gaveston his lieutenant in Scotland. After Edward had gone, however... Piers was unable to make any inroads against the enemy, and, after a series of savage Scottish raids into the north of England, withdrew to Bamborough in Northumberland. Meanwhile, the Lord's ordainers had drawn up their full list of 41 ordinances, and on August the 3rd a copy was sent to the King for inspection. To his utter dismay, he could see that the ordainers meant to limit his power severely. He was not allowed to grant land, go to war, or even leave the realm without the consent of the barons in Parliament. His bankers, the Frescobaldi, were banished and ruined, and his financial privileges curtailed. He was to live more wisely and avoid oppression of the people. The king must not, the king must not, The list of prohibitions went on and on. This was all shocking enough, but Edward was far more distressed by Ordinance 20, which demanded that, because Piers Gaveston had misled and ill-advised our Lord the King, and enticed him to do evil in various deceitful ways, he be exiled for all time and without hope of return, as a public enemy of the King and his people. Parliament met at Blackfriars in London on August 8th, and the King arrived in the capital a day or so later. On the 16th, Parliament formally presented the ordinances to the King for his consent. A desperate Edward tried to bargain with them, offering to agree to all their provisions on condition that his brother-peers... Was allowed to remain with him. But the barons were implacable. Even though the king went on relentlessly coaxing them with flattery or hurling threats, they could in no way be brought to agree. So far, the records have afforded us only occasional glimpses of Isabella, but fortunately her household book for the year 1311 12 has survived. This provides a great deal of information about her daily life at this time, which is why there are more detailed references to her in the period covered by the rest of this chapter. Isabella had travelled south at a slower pace than Edward. She moved south via Morpeth, July 27th, Durham, July 29th, Darlington, July 30th, Northallerton, August 1st, Pontefract, August 5th, Doncaster, August sixth, Nottingham, August ninth, Northampton, August sixteenth, and St Albans, August nineteenth, and joined the king in London around the twenty-first. Her possessions were transported on carts supplied by northern monks. During her journey, Isabella dictated letter after letter to a number of people, including the Bishop of Durham, the Abbot of Thornton, the Abbot of Newburgh. William Melton, keeper of the king's wardrobe and of the privy seal, and one, brother William de Cavers, of the Minorite Order. As will be seen, this correspondence was to continue after her return to London. All these letters are lost, but looking at the number sent, we may speculate that some of them, at least, were written in an attempt to win support for the king. Isabella brought in her train a Scottish orphan boy, little Tomalinus, and when she got to London, moved by piety of heart, by his miseries, she charitably gave him alms in the form of sustenance and clothing in the amount of four ells of blanket cloth and one hanging purchased for the bed of the said Tomalinus by the hands of John de Stebenheath, merchant of London at Westminster, for six shillings and sixpence, 33p. Once in London, Isabella sent the child to live with Agnes, the wife of Jean, one of her French musicians, to learn his letters from her, and provided 40 shillings, two pounds, for his keep for the next year. She also paid 12 shillings and eightpence, 63p, for small necessities purchased for his use, along with getting rid of the sores on his head. Another instance of her thoughtfulness occurred when, on September the 4th, she sent one William Bale to see the condition of John Des Moines, ill at St Albans. Both men were employed by her as messengers. On her arrival in London, Isabella, who had been brought up to regard kings as virtual autocrats, Cannot have been pleased to learn that her husband's royal prerogatives had been usurped by his barons, and she must have had very mixed feelings as she watched him agonising over approving the ordinance that demanded Peers's banishment. Yet both he and she knew that he really had no choice. The alternative, with which he'd already been threatened, was civil war, and he was in no position to win it. Isabella may well have confided her anxieties in a letter she wrote to Queen Marguerite, then at Devises, on September 4th. The ordinances were publicly proclaimed on September 27th in St Paul's Churchyard in London, and Archbishop Winchelsea threatened to excommunicate anyone who dared to violate them. Three days later, Edward was finally forced to agree to them all, Without exception. It may be significant that on October the fifth, Isabella wrote to John de Insula, a prominent judge at York. Was she seeking legal advice regarding her husband's position? The king was determined to see Pierre's one more time before their parting, and on October the eighth, he issued a safe conduct to our chosen and faithful one so that he could come to the king at his command. But their time together was brief. They had until All Saints Day, November the 1st, by which time Piers was to have left England forever. This time, the barons were determined to ensure that the absent favourite was not given any kind of office by the king and they had specified that he was not to set foot in any of Edward's dominions, that is, not in England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales or Gascony. On October 9th, Edward wrote to his sister Margaret and her husband, Duke John, in Brabant, asking if they would receive peers. Then, in accordance with the ordinances, the king stripped Gaveston of the earldom of Cornwall but defiantly placed it in the hands of Piers's cousin, Bernard de callot On October ninth, Isabella left London to go on another pilgrimage to Beckett's Shrine. It's interesting to note that her expenses for this short trip came to an astronomical £140,000. She arrived at Eltham on the 11th and there received a messenger from her father, for whom a bed was provided by her officer of the hall. She was in Rochester on October 13th, Ospringe on the 14th, where her apothecary, Ordine, paid three shillings and eightpence, eighteen p, for no less than five hundred Galloway pears for her use, and reached Canterbury on the 15th. That day she went as a pilgrim to the cathedral and prayed at the shrine of St. Thomas. Offering there a gold nugget worth four pounds six shillings and eightpence, four pounds thirty three. The Queen stayed in Canterbury only one night. While she was there, she sent a messenger, John de Nantel, to parts of France with letters for her brother Charles and to various other magnates and ladies of those parts. She returned via Ospringe, Sittingbourne, Rochester and Dartford. Here, on October 18th, she purchased wine from George, an innkeeper, and was back at Eltham on October 19th, on which day she dispatched a letter to the Earl of Surrey with great haste, which suggests that she was again building bridges on the King's behalf. She wrote to her friend Isabella de Vesey on October 27th, and to the King at Windsor, again with haste, on the 28th. On the 29th, she sent a letter to Adam Osgoby, the Vice-Chancellor. Her household book lists many more letters sent by the Queen during the weeks prior to Christmas. Some of these letters were clearly only concerned with domestic issues, but given the names of some of the recipients others are likely to have been related to the current political crisis. Meanwhile, Edward had sent envoys to ask King Philip for support against the ordainers, and it was to sweeten Philip and comfort Isabella that he joined the Queen at Eltham before October 29th, and in late October and early November granted her the manners of Bourne and Market Deeping in Lincolnshire and Eltham, with further land in Kent. Elton Palace, where Isabella stayed both before and after her pilgrimage, was now her own, Bishop Beck having died and bequeathed it to the king, who had immediately granted it to the queen. During the next few years, with financial assistance from her husband, Isabella would make various improvements and alterations. In 1312, Led Estridge Board and Plaster of Paris were purchased for minor works. Then, on May 12, 1315, Isabella ordered a new stone wall with 56 buttresses to be built around the moat at a cost of £305, 15 shillings and sevenpence. But the work turned out to be seriously defective and the wall had to be demolished, while the three London masons responsible were tried by the Exchequer Court and thrown into prison. In 1317, however, after providing sufficient sureties and undertaking to rebuild the wall, they were released and the work was subsequently completed. The foundations of this wall still survive on the northwest side of the Great Court. The timber drawbridge was rebuilt in stone around the same time as the wall. In 1315, the royal apartments were refurbished. They were probably timber-framed on stone foundations and were a hundred feet above sea level. From the windows, Isabella could see the spire of St Paul's Cathedral. These apartments included at least two halls, chapels for the king and queen, a long chamber next to the king's great chamber, and a bathhouse. The extended palace was built round three courtyards, the inner Upper and lower courts, and the outer, green court, beyond which was the wooded hunting park. On October twenty ninth, perhaps in gratitude for her new properties, or at the king's instance, Isabella wrote to her receiver in Ponthieu for the affairs of the Earl of Cornwall, which suggests either that she had agreed to shelter peers in her domains or that she was willing to transfer funds to him through her offices there. The continuing favour shown by Edward to Isabella now bore fruit, for Philip agreed to issue a safe conduct through France for Gaveston, should he need it. In November, John de Nantel returned from France with replies to Isabella's letters, and in December the Queen was again in contact with her father, through another messenger, John Des Moines, who was now recovered from his sickness. These exchanges of messengers prove that the Queen was keeping Philip IV closely informed of events in England and was receiving advice from him. It may be that her own reports of her husband's recent generosity helped to influence Philip's decision to give Gaveston the safe conduct. On November 3rd, Gaveston left England under guard, sailing down the Thames on a ship probably bound for Brabant. The next day, Parliament met at Westminster, and the ordinances were promulgated. The Queen arrived at Westminster on the 6th and stayed nine days. Thus, she was present when her friends, Henry de Beaumont and Isabella de Vessy and several officers of the royal household and her own household were dismissed from court in accordance with the ordinances. Both Beaumonts had been censured for having given evil counsel to the king. Lady de Vessy, who now returned to her home in Yorkshire, was accused of illegally securing the issue of writs. Then the lords demanded that Piers' friends and partisans should leave court, lest they should stir up the king to recall Piers once more. At this, the king's anger knew no bounds, so, out of hatred for the earls, he recalled Piers, swearing on God's soul that he would freely use his own judgment. Gaveston came at once secretly returning to England at the end of November. He came by way of Flanders because he suspected the King of France, but though France might be dangerous for him, England was going to be more so. On the 30th, hearing rumours that he had been sighted, now in Tintagel and other places in the West Country, now at Wallingford, or was hiding in the Royal Apartments at Westminster, the barons obliged the king to institute a search for him. The next day, Edward once again begged Philip for support, and on December 18th, he retreated in a temper to Windsor, complaining bitterly that the ordainers were treating him like an idiot. Isabella, already in residence in the castle, was a witness to his fury she may well have been angry herself with the ordainers for dismissing the Bowmans. On November 27th, she had sent letters to her father, her three brothers, her uncles, Evreux and Valois, and to various other magnates and ladies of parts of France, possibly expressing her indignation. Her household book also records that on December 26th she paid 27 shillings... One pound thirty five to the clerks of the King's Chancery to make her a copy of the ordinances for her own use. Was she looking for ways to circumvent them? By December twenty first, the King and Queen had arrived at Westminster, where they were to spend Christmas. Isabella wrote to Queen Marguerite on that day. The Dowager Queen was keeping Christmas at Berkhamstead, which Edward had deemed it politic to restore to her. On Christmas Eve, Isabella instructed her treasurer and wardrobe keeper, William de Bowden, to give Edward a hundred shillings to wager at dice. Gaveston had remained in hiding, but on December 23rd, Edward received a message from him, and by Christmas, Piers had joined the King and Queen at Westminster, where he showed himself openly at court. Isabella was greatly moved to see him back, but she held her peace. There were now greater issues at stake than the defiance of the favourite. Edward was utterly determined to throw off the yoke imposed on him by the ordainers, and on December 30th he secured control of the Great Seal of England, having resolved to reassert his authority, build up his own party, and escape bondage. Isabella stood with the king. She might not have approved of Gaveston's role in her husband's life, but, thrown into his company as often as she was, she had perhaps come to find him an amusing companion, and not such a threat to her own position as she had first feared. More pertinently, she certainly would have applauded Edward's determination to stand up to those who were doing their best to strip him of his sovereign powers. In January 1312, demonstrating that she was not to be dictated to, she sent New Year's gifts of wild boar meat not only to Lancaster and Hereford, but also to Isabella de Vessy, who received more wild boar meat and some Brie cheese worth twenty seven and sixpence, one pound thirty eight, which was brought to her, wrapped in canvas, by the Queen's messenger Gaffio de Lanville. Another lady who benefited from Isabella's generosity was Margaret de Clare, Gaveston's wife. Margaret was pregnant, and at the end of December, Isabella sent her man, John de Marnie, from Westminster, with various precious foods to give on behalf of the Queen to the Countess as her New Year's gift. The singling out of Gaveston's wife is further proof that Isabella had thawed towards Piers, or was at least making an effort to please her troubled husband. After Christmas, Edward and Piers had gone to Windsor, leaving the Queen in London. On January 1st, 1312, Isabella sent William de Bowden to the King with certain precious objects as her New Year's gifts to him. Little Tomalinus was also in the Queen's thoughts at this time, and on January 3rd she sent him alms in the form of four ells of mixed cloth from which to make one robe for himself, at the cost of eight shillings and tuppence, 41p. On January 4th Isabella left Westminster for Windsor. She stayed that night at Isleworth, where ale was purchased for her use, and joined Edward at Windsor on January 5th. From here, she sent letters to Hugh Le Dispenser, Isabella de Vessy and Joan de Genville, Roger Mortimer's wife, and dispatched William de Bowden to London to obtain for her goblets and various other precious objects. She was still at Windsor on January 25th, but had returned to Westminster by February 2nd. The king had decided that he would be better able to assert his authority and protect Gaveston if he moved the seat of government to York. Leaving Isabella behind, he and Piers left London on January 7th, Edward having given orders that the Great Seal be brought to him at York and that the officers of Chancery, who communicated the monarch's wishes by means of writs, attend him there. Then Edward conceived a stupid scheme to seek a safe refuge for peers in Scotland. He was even prepared to ask his arch-enemy, Robert Bruce, to give him sanctuary. Bruce, however, refused, saying, If the King of England will not keep faith with his own people, how then will he keep faith with me? Thus was the King's hope shattered. Edward and Gaveston reached York by January eighteenth, and two days later the King returned Gaveston's forfeited estates to him, then defiantly sent orders to London that public proclamation be made at the Guildhall that his good and loyal Piers Gaveston had now returned at the royal command, having been exiled contrary to the laws of England. Edward also restored Bamborough Castle to Isabella de Vesey and the Isle of Man to Henry de Beaumont. Both properties had been confiscated at the time of their dismissal from court. On January 27th, the King announced that only the ordinances that were not prejudicial to his prerogative were to be observed. Then he began preparing for the war that was now inevitable. He sent orders to the Lord Mayor to hold London for him against the barons and also sought support from the Pope. On January 31st, Isabella was given £400 for the expenses of her journey north and set off soon afterwards. Again, her household book details her route, which took her via St Albans, where she made her oblations in the Abbey on February 5th, Dunstable, February 6th, and Newport Pagnell, February 7th, where Odine, her apothecary, paid six shillings and eightpence, 33p, for apples, pears and cherries for the Queen. Then it was on to Northampton, February 8th, Leicester, February 11th, Nottingham, making further oblations on February 13th, and Blythe, February 16th. From Doncaster, on February 17th, Isabella sent the king one basket of lampreys, then continued her journey via Pontefract, February 18th, Sherburne and Tadcaster, February 19th, and Thorpe, February 21st. There, her baggage was loaded onto a boat to be taken up the River Ouse to York. During this journey, Isabella kept in touch with the king through her messenger, John Des Moines. Gaveston had brought his pregnant wife, Margaret de Clare, to York with him, and there, in late January or early February, she gave birth to her second child, a daughter who was named Joan, after Margaret's mother, Joan of Acre. The Countess underwent the customary ceremony of postpartum purification, known as churching, on February 20th in the Franciscan Friary at York, and after the Queen had arrived, she was in York by February 24th, the infant was christened, and at the King's expense, the court was entertained by one King Robert and his minstrels. While staying in York... Isabella gave cloths of gold to the Friars Minor on March 8th and to St Mary's Abbey on April 14th. She must also have ordered new clothes for herself from her tailor, John de Falaise, who was with her in York. On April 3rd, she gave ten shillings, 50p, in arms to Little Walter, the courier of the Queen's Great Wardrobe, for buying one robe for himself. By this time, Edward and Isabella had finally consummated their marriage, for in March, the Queen discovered she was pregnant. Soon afterwards, Edward wrote to King Philip, informing him that his daughter was in good health and will, God propitious, be fruitful. This, incidentally, is the only reference the King is known to have made to Isabella in his correspondence with her father. Isabella sent letters too, probably announcing her happy news, to Queen Marguerite, the Countess of Pembroke, and Edward's sister, the Nun Mary. The latest date for the consummation of the royal marriage would have been the previous Christmas, by which time Isabella would have reached her 16th birthday. Of course, the consummation could have taken place before then, for it was usual for married couples to begin cohabiting when the wife was fourteen, or even before that. It could, therefore, have happened as early as 1308, during Gaveston's exile, when Edward began paying proper attention to Isabella and was intent on winning the goodwill of her father. If so, intercourse must have been infrequent, as the Queen did not become pregnant for at least three years. The fact that the births of her children were to occur at widely spaced intervals, four, two and three years, and that there were four-year gaps both before and after these childbearing years, suggests that Edward never visited her bed regularly. It is possible, however, that the king chose to mollify Isabella by timing the consummation of their marriage to coincide with Piers's unauthorised return at Christmas 1311 in order to win her support and that of her father, and also reassure them that Gaveston was no threat to her position. As we have seen, she readily gave that support. Was she demonstrating her gratitude at being given at last a chance to bear an heir and thus consolidate her position as Queen? Was she also pleased that her handsome husband had at last played the man and paid her the kind of attentions that she regarded as being due to her alone? We can only speculate. Whenever it took place, the consummation of Isabella's marriage may well have contributed to the improvement of her relations with Gaveston.
0: This ends disc three. Queen Isabella, disc four.
1: It was not an auspicious time to be expecting an heir to the throne. Gaveston's recall by the king had been tantamount to a declaration of war, and by March the barons had taken up arms ready to force the issue over the favourite. Five earls... Lancaster, Warwick, Pembroke, Arundel and Hereford all swore to kill peers if they laid hands on him. Even the moderate Gloucester offered his support against him. That month the Lords assembled at St Paul's to witness a wrathful Archbishop Winchelsea seize his sword and strike Piers with anathema for having contravened the ordinances. Meanwhile, Isabella was busying herself, probably on her husband's behalf, writing endless letters, including what were perhaps conciliatory ones to Lancaster, Gloucester, Hereford, Surrey, Richmond and Pembroke. She even wrote to the Countess of Lancaster at nearby Pickering. Given that she would soon earn a reputation as a peacemaker, she may well have been trying to mediate with the opposition. On March 6th, the king ordered the powerful northern baron Henry Percy to hand over Scarborough Castle to his own custodian, and by the 17th, Gaveston had left York and was ensconced there, surveying the fortifications. For the king and queen, there was a brief respite from care at Easter, with much revelry at court on Easter Monday. Knowing that the king was a great lover of horseplay, the queen's damsels burst in upon him as he lay late in bed in the morning, dragged him out of it, and made him their prisoner, forcing him to pay a ransom before they would release him. Amidst much laughter, he paid them a generous sum. This tomfoolery had its origins in an old custom celebrating the resurrection of Christ. Gaveston returned to York on March 31st and was granted Scarborough Castle with orders to hold it against all comers and relinquish it to no one but the King. Isabella's household book records that she sent letters from York to the King on the 1st and 4th of April. At that time, he was in Scarborough with Gaveston, overseeing the repairs to the castle that were then being put in hand and trying to win the support of the Burgesses. But Lancaster and his private army were now closing in on York, and on April 5th, after issuing a hurried summons to Gascony for troops, Edward fled northwards with Gaveston to Newcastle, which they reached on the 10th, leaving the Queen to follow at a more leisurely pace. She reached... Thirsk on April 16th, and stayed four nights, which suggests that she needed to rest on account of her pregnancy. Then she lodged at Darlington on the 20th and 21st of April, where she dictated a letter to her husband. She arrived at Newcastle before the 22nd, but her wardrobe had had to be left behind at York, and she was evidently anxious about some of her possessions because she sent her messenger, John de Nontal, back to York to look for certain secret things pertaining to the chamber of the Queen there. In leaving Isabella to make her own slow way north, Edward may have reasoned that she had little to fear from her uncle of Lancaster, although she would of course have made a valuable hostage a fact of which her husband must have been aware. However, Edward's first priority was to protect Gaveston. On April 23rd, only a day or two after Isabella had arrived in Newcastle, he sent her to Tynemouth Priory for safety, whence she could escape by sea if necessary. She was in residence there by April 26th when she presented a cloth of gold to the Priory Church. The next day, she wrote to her father and various French lords, doubtless to tell them of her plight. Tynemouth Priory, perched upon a cliff top overlooking the Tyne Estuary and the North Sea, dated from the 7th century, but had been refounded and rebuilt by the Benedictine Order between 1090 and 1130. A nearby Norman church had since been converted into one of the largest castles in England, and both castle and priory were surrounded by a curtain wall. Yet, fortified though it was, Tynemouth was highly vulnerable to Scottish raids or attack from the sea. The priory had once been destroyed by Viking invaders, so Isabella was by no means safe there, nor, in such spartan and antiquated surroundings, could she have been very comfortably housed. On May fourth, having taken York, Lancaster's army surprised Edward and Gaveston at Newcastle, whence they managed to escape with barely any time to spare, leaving behind their baggage, clothes, jewels, and horses. Meeting no resistance, Lancaster and his men occupied Newcastle and seized not only Gaveston's wife and baby but also all his goods, among which were many luxurious items, including precious ornaments given to Edward by Isabella, which took the Earl four days to catalogue. While he was doing so, King and Favourite had made their way down the river Tyne to Tynemouth, whence, on May 10th, fearing with good reason that Lancaster meant to lay siege to the castle and priory, they fled by boat to Scarborough. The king left Gaveston there to hold the castle and made for York, where he was hoping to raise an army. Perhaps because she was in the difficult early stages of pregnancy, Isabella did not accompany them on the sea voyage. She had begged her husband in tears not to leave her, but he insisted that she remain behind at Tynemouth. Lancaster sent a secret message to her there, reassuring her that the barons intended her no harm, and that their sole object was to secure the person of the favourite. He would not rest, he told her, until Gaveston had been driven from the king's society. This is the sole piece of evidence on which the theories of Lancaster's support for Isabella during Gaveston's ascendancy have been based. However, it is unlikely that Isabella received his reassurances, since her household book shows that she left Tynemouth in a hurry, leaving most of her possessions at South Shields so that she could make speedier progress. They were not retrieved for several weeks there's no evidence that she went to scarborough so she probably fled the priory shortly after edward and gaveston had sailed away and traveled via darlington and ripon to york where she rejoined the king on may 16th on this day edward reimbursed her controller john de fleet for the expenses of her household isabella couldn't have felt very kindly disposed towards her husband who had twice fled and left her behind, all in order to keep his favourite safe, and with little thought for her own safety, even though she was carrying his child. The Ordainer's army, under the command of Pembroke, now laid siege to Scarborough, ignoring the king's commands to desist. Unable to hold out due to lack of provisions, Gaveston surrendered to Pembroke on May 19th on very generous terms. Gaveston was to be held under house arrest at his own castle of Wallingford until he could present his case before Parliament and give an account of his actions. If Parliament hadn't decided his fate by August 1st, or he disputed its verdict, he should then be free to return to Scarborough with fresh supplies. In the meantime, his own men could hold the castle for him. Pembroke himself swore on the Gospels on pain of forfeiture of his estates to keep his prisoners safe until August 1st. Piers was then taken by Pembroke in honourable captivity to York, where he had a brief and final, although neither knew it, meeting with the king, and thence, at the beginning of June, southwards towards Wallingford. On June 9th, he and his escort arrived at the market town of Deddington, ten miles south of Banbury, in Oxfordshire, where Pembroke arranged for peers to lodge in the rectory. Pembroke's wife was staying just twelve miles away at Bampton, and wishing to spend the night with her, he rode off, leaving his prisoner, as he thought, "'safely under guard. "'Warwick, however, had learned of Gaveston's whereabouts, "'and early in the morning of June 10th "'he had the rectory surrounded with a large force of soldiers, "'then cried out in ringing tones from the courtyard, "'I think you know me. "'I am the Black Dog of Arden. "'Get up, traitor. "'You are taken.' "'In his bedchamber, Piers began pulling on his clothes,' But Warwick's men burst in and hustled him out, half-dressed and without his hat, hose, and shoes. Gaveston was taken under guard to Warwick Castle that same day. Barefoot, stripped of his belt of knighthood like a common thief, and deafened by the blaring trumpets and the horrid sound of the populace, he was compelled to walk through the town... Running the gauntlet of the jeering, taunting mob. Only when the grim procession had left Deddington behind was he allowed to mount a mule, a sorry steed for one who had been such a great earl and the king's beloved. But Edward was far away. On reaching Warwick, Gaveston was immediately thrown into a dungeon. He whom Piers had called Warwick the Dog had now bound Piers with chains. The king was distraught to hear that Piers was taken, and dashed off frantic letters to Philip IV and the Pope, beseeching them to intervene with the barons, and even offering them joint possession of Gascony if they could save Gaveston's life. Isabella, meanwhile, had left York some time after June 5th, and had moved south to Selby, and eastwards to Howden by the 8th. Here she probably lodged in the Bishop's Palace. She left Howden by June 11th, and by the 15th she had travelled further east to Beverley. The roof-boss in the cathedral may commemorate her visit. And was in Bostwick on the 18th, thus She was far removed from the events taking place in Deddington and Warwick, and was in no way involved in them. Presently, Lancaster, Hereford, Arundel, and other magnates arrived at Warwick, and debated with Warwick what to do with Gaveston. All agreed that he should be put to death, but they were concerned to cloak their proceedings with a semblance of legality. Warwick didn't want to be implicated at all in the killing of Gaveston, so Lancaster, being of higher birth and more powerful than the rest, took upon himself the full peril of the business. While he lives, there will be no safe place in the realm of England, as many proofs have hitherto shown us, he declared. There was a travesty of a trial in the presence of two hastily summoned royal justices. Probably coincidentally, one was William Ing, to whom Isabella had written four letters between January 17th and February 4th. Gaveston was not allowed to speak in his own defence. Lancaster presided over the hearing and ordered Peers, after three terms of exile as one disobedient to three lawful warnings, to be put to death. Later, the earls were to claim, on questionable grounds, that, having proceeded against peers for having contravened the 20th Ordinance, they were unaware at the time that the king had revoked that ordinance. Meanwhile, Pembroke, whose honour was at stake because he'd given his oath to keep Gaveston safe and who stood to lose his estates if that oath was broken was desperately trying to persuade the other ordainers to order Gaveston's release. But no one, not even Piers's brother-in-law Gloucester, who coldly advised him to learn another time to negotiate more cautiously, nor the University of Oxford, to which Pembroke appealed in desperation, was willing to listen to him. In the small hours of June 19th, Warwick sent a sharp-tongued messenger to Piers, telling him to look to his soul, because this was the last day he would see on earth. With sighs and groans, the condemned man pitiably lamented his fate, but he knew that there could be no reprieve and was fatalistic. "'Let the will of the earls be done,' he said. At three in the morning, he was bound, dragged from his dungeon and handed over by Warwick to Lancaster, who told him that he was to be beheaded as a nobleman and a Roman citizen, a concession to his status as Gloucester's brother-in-law. It would have shamed the Earl if Piers were hanged or made to suffer the full horrors of a traitor's death. On hearing of his fate, Piers threw himself on his knees before Lancaster and begged for mercy. But Lancaster merely said, Lift him up, lift him up. In God's name, let him be taken away. Those watching, seeing him brought so low, could barely restrain their tears. Then Gaveston was hastened to the place where he was to suffer the last penalty, to Blacklow Hill, which lies a mile or so north of Warwick, and was just beyond the boundary of Warwick's estates on Lancaster's land. Warwick had stayed behind in his castle, again dissociating himself from what was to happen, but Lancaster, Hereford and Arundel followed the prisoner at a distance. Crowds had gathered to watch the hated favourite pass, and they blew horns and shouted for joy to see him brought so low. At Blacklow Hill, at Lancaster's command, Piers was handed over to two Welsh soldiers, both Lancaster's men, and the earls withdrew a short way off. Then Piers was dragged up the hill by the Welshmen. Ignoring his pleas for mercy, one pierced him through the heart with his sword, and the other cut off his head and showed it to Lancaster. The earls then rode off, satisfied that the odious reign of the favourite had come to an end. The body lay where it had fallen until four shoemakers found it, and the head, and conveyed both on a ladder to Warwick Castle. But Warwick came to the gate and refused the corpse admittance, ordering that it be carried off his land. So they took it back again and left it on Blacklow Hill where they had found it. Soon some Dominican friars of Oxford came upon the remains and conveyed them to their convent, They sewed the head back on with twine and had the body embalmed with balsam and spices and dressed in cloth of gold. But they could not give it Christian burial because Gaveston had died excommunicate. So they kept it in their friary until such time as its fate should be decided. In the opinion of one chronicler, Gaveston had been wicked, impious and criminal and, as such, deserved to die but the manner of his death was equally impious and criminal as another observed they had put to death a great earl whom the king had adopted as brother and cherished as a son and friend whatever Gaveston had been what happened at Blacklow Hill was little better than murder and the repercussions from it Were to overshadow Isabella's life for many years to come. Chapter 3 All That Is Prudent, Amiable, and Feminine. When they brought the news of Gaveston's murder to the king, although he was saddened, his first reaction appeared callous. By God's soul, he acted like a fool he cried angrily to those standing by. If he had taken my advice, he would never have fallen into the hands of the earls. What was he doing with the Earl of Warwick, who was known never to have liked him? When this flippant utterance became public, it moved many to derision. But, of course, Edward was devastated by grief. His biographer wrote... I am certain the king grieved for peers as a father grieves for his son, for the greater the love, the greater the sorrow. And to grief was added deadly rage, as Edward vowed to destroy those who had killed Gaveston, and thus avenge his murder. Edward's need for vengeance was to dominate his life in the years to come. He couldn't bring himself to forgive those who had committed this final atrocity. Because of Gaveston's death, there arose a mortal and perpetual hatred of the king for his earls, observed a chronicler. Nor did he neglect to do all honours to Gaveston's remains. Both he and Piers's widow paid for waxed seer cloths and a coffin in which to lay the dead man's unburied body and funded men to watch over it. Edward also made generous financial provision for Margaret de Clare and her daughter, and for Gaveston's former servants, and he gave gifts to the Dominicans at Langley in return for prayers for Piers's unhallowed soul. Gaveston's murder split the barons' party and undermined the opposition, removing the threat of civil war. It brought an angry Pembroke, full of rage and still smarting at that broken oath, over to the king, and Surrey and Hugh Le Dispenser, the younger, with him. It also led to the emergence of the elder Dispenser, whom Lancaster loathed, as leader of the court party that supported Edward. There were, of course, many who rejoiced in the fall of the favourite. The death of one man had never before been acceptable to so many. But others were shocked, and of the opinion that the Lord's ordainers had acted unlawfully. Consequently, there was considerable sympathy for the king. Edward was now in a stronger position than he had been since his accession. Isabella was at the Royal Manor House in Bostwick on the day of Gaveston's beheading. She moved to Beverley the next day and had returned to York before June 29th when she gave the chaplain of the Chapel of the Temple next to York Castle material for one chasuble. The next day she made her oblations before the altar of St Mary's Abbey. Isabella must have learned of Gaveston's death by then because on June 29th she wrote to the king almost certainly to express her sympathy, and perhaps her outrage, at his loss. There is no suggestion anywhere that Edward ever entertained any notion that Isabella had been involved in Gaveston's death. The King had already hastened south, but the Queen stayed in York until the end of July, when her husband sent an escort to conduct her to Westminster. He himself was then in London taking counsel of his loyal advisers as to what action he should take against Gaveston's murderers. Pembroke and Surrey were urging him to declare outright war on these traitors. And certainly, for a time, it appeared that Edward was preparing for a military confrontation. Late in June, he called on the Lord Mayor of London to hold the city for him, and he spent July and August securing his position summoning levies, fortifying castles, and putting his defences in order. During August, he sent Pembroke to King Philip and the Pope to inform them of the critical situation in England and ask for help. However, when Parliament met at Westminster on August 20th, its main concern was to establish a peace process. But on September 3rd, In defiance of the king, Lancaster, Warwick and Hereford marched on London in arms and, unrepentant, determined to face down their master. They were stopped at Ware, and forbidden to enter the city. As far as Lancaster in particular was concerned, the removal of Gaveston had been merely the first step towards limiting the king's power to the extent that he would become Lancaster's puppet. The Earl was determined to force Edward to observe the ordinances, be he never so hostile to them. Edward, for his part, wanted Lancaster and Warwick tried, condemned and executed. Only the mediation of Gloucester averted a military confrontation. Isabella wasn't there to support Edward through this contretemps. She had to travel slowly because of her pregnancy and didn't return to London until September 9th. This was the first time she had seen the king since Gaveston's death and it cannot have been an easy reunion. Philip IV, spurred on by the news of the murder of the favourite and hope that Isabella was carrying a prince, responded to Edward's request by sending Evreux once more to England with a team of lawyers to help bring about a peace between the king and his barons. The Pope, too, sent legates to assist in this process. After Evreux arrived in the middle of September, he dined with Isabella on the 15th, negotiations were opened. Isabella played her part, supporting Gloucester, the legates and the bishops in their efforts to bring about a reconciliation, but progress was slow, since feelings ran high on both sides, and the parleying went on for many weeks. Amidst this uproar, various rumours were flying hither and thither, as one man foretold peace, his neighbour, war. When Isabella was seven months pregnant,